sit down and buckle up. It's time for the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Wait, this is a special episode. This is a special episode. You are in your house in I am. Pleasant, Tennessee. You are done with your five-month... Uh, I, I don't want to pick on Florida for that, but you're back. You're back in Tennessee yeah. in yeah, your house. I'm in, I'm in Pleasant, Mount Pleasant. Still unpacking, as you can see behind me. I've still got some boxes stacked back there. But yeah, we're settling into the new place. Settling into the new life, finding uh, uh, finding uh, a new rhythm here, um, reestablishing some old connections and making some new ones. Okay, so it's an you, exciting can, time. Can you just? I've never asked you this. I I feel like you've told me this, but you have your leg lamp from the Christmas story. For those of you that watch the Christmas story, the dad it's gets a major his, award. His major award. Uh-huh. He's so happy, and it's the what do they call it? Liquid sex? Is that what the kid called that leg? <laughs> and all the neighbors were outside, and you have a leg lamp. You've yes, always had it from the time I first came to your house, like I don't know, 15, 16 years ago, and it's behind yeah. you right now. How did you get the leg lamp that I have to stare at while talking to you right now? I don't know. It was a it was a present from my kids on Father's Day years ago and uh I, and i took it as it i took i took it as a compliment <laughs> I don't, okay keep going keep yeah. talking i'm yeah. not gonna yeah, I'm yeah, not, yeah. yeah. so now it, it, it was not long i mean they knew they knew i was just uh, you know recovering from sex addiction so i think that kind of made it a little funnier i don't know okay so, but i've got this i've got this very sexy leg lamp the major award from the yeah. Christmas story. So that's you got I, your, your major award. For, okay. Thank you. So yeah. that's, that's in the background. But from my kids. Yeah. Well, from, so that makes it okay. It's cool. Sure. No problem. Yeah. Uh, so how does it, feel so it, it, it made the trip. Be, yeah. Yeah. It made the trip. So how does it feel to be, I mean, you left this place, this yeah. area that you were so connected to. Yeah, you've right. been gone five months, and now you're yeah. in a whole new. I'm in a whole town. new town. It's yeah. like 45 minutes away. There's there's no yeah. connection other yeah. than your daughter living five doors up. Right. So how do you feel about that? Uh, scared uh, and excited. Um, you know, I think all of us. At some point or another, you know, want to do it, want to do over, right? Want to maybe a chance. Maybe if I could do it one more time, I could do it a little better. Uh, so I kind of have had some thoughts in my mind about how to introduce myself and establish myself and network in a new town. And I, I'm starting to do that. You know, it, it begins at the coffee shop and striking up conversations with people, uh, walking the dog around the block and uh, introducing myself to neighbors uh, I have not introduced myself as uh, Nate, the recovering sex addict. Um, however, is, is that how you did it in Franklin? No, but uh, you know, as as word got around, 
Uh, I, I guess when the uh, the book came out and that that kind of that kind of broke my anonymity a little bit there around town. And also, you know, people talk. Uh, I you know I became the guy to go to, much like our guest will describe. I, I really resonated with uh, his experience. When you're doing your own work, people know you're doing your own work. You become safe uh, when finally they can't ignore their issues any longer. So what's the difference between how you're engaging Mount Pleasant from uh, Franklin how many years ago? I mean, that was, yeah, yeah. That was a lot of years ago. Yeah, a couple yeah. Of decades. Yeah, I'm being yeah, I'm being a, it was 24 years ago that we moved to uh, Franklin. So I'm being a lot more proactive and deliberate this time. Um I uh, and I really and my plan is to meet all the pastors in town. So there's five, four of them. Uh, and introduce myself to them a, as a resource and see if I can get enough trust that maybe they'll start sending some guys my way. There's four of them. That just shows everybody how small this town. Oh, it's a tiny town, man. Four. Yeah. I mean, I know that, but four churches, I would think in a town your size in Tennessee, there'd be at least 64, four churches. Maybe I counted wrong. There's the Baptist, the Methodist, the uh, Presbyterian and the church of Christ. No, that's it. There's four. Well, yeah. that's that's awesome. What an yeah. interesting thing. Uh, I'm, I mean, it's taken me three and a half years to start to move into different community. Yeah. And I so get that. It's weird. Yeah. And you're a couple weeks in and doing it. Yeah. Yeah. You're doing great. But we are about to have a conversation with a guy that hopefully other Samson folks will meet soon. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and I don't want to tip it any more than that, but what a wonderful conversation. You're going to love it when we come back on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome back to the Pirate Monk Podcast. Well, Aaron, I think it's uh, it's been uh, about six weeks to two months now since I started getting a bunch of emails from guys who'd gone to an intensive weekend. All Samson guys. Uh, and what did they and What did they say, Nate? <laughs> it was just a freaking you know light. They could not say enough about the power of the weekend. It was an intensive weekend with uh, an interesting, a unique pair of therapists, a father and son, uh, Roan and Roe Hunter. Man, and, I uh, wish we could get them on the show. <laughs> well, we managed to get the father on and uh, and we've booked the son and actually, we'll, we'll get to this. We got great things coming on down the road, but Roan Hunter from uh, Jackson, Mississippi or uh, those parts anyway, around there. Welcome to he the show. He was willing. Let's call him up. <laughs> ring, ring, ring. Come on, man. You're wrecking the live component here. <laughs> I am here. Ron, I am here. Ron, say hello like I'm calling you. Just, just <laughs> yeah, Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. Hello, Aaron. Hello, Ron. <laughs> this is the Pirate Monk Podcast. Uh, all, right. all right. You guys do what you got to do now. You've already wrecked my fun. Oh, <laughs> 
So, uh, so Roan, you, as I understand it, uh, well, first of all, you you are uh, a therapist, a specialized therapist, uh, and this is not your first career, nor I imagine is it one that you um, that you uh, foresaw when you were a young man. Oh no, n- not at all. Uh-huh. Um, if you would have told me I was going to be a counselor. Yeah, I probably would have laughed at you or beat you up or something. That, that would be the last thing that would have been on my radar. Well, can you I like describe it. aggressive? It's good. Yeah, yeah. what's the pro- oh, yeah. what's the progression to you getting here? Yeah, what's the, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, give us uh, in uh, yeah, give us the story, the long and winding road that brought you to where you are. Oh yeah. Well, uh, you know, I uh I always say I grew up in a little small town in Mississippi, like there's something else in Mississippi besides a little <laughs> small town. And I didn't even grow up in a little small town. I grew up, we farmed about 4,000 acres out in the middle of nowhere. Wow. And uh, We farmed and, about 4,000 acres. You said that so casually. <laughs> we, we had a tomato farm on one acre when I was growing up, so that's... <laughs> Okay, Mississippi. I'm wrapping my mind yeah, around this. Just, so this is what this is what you do. Okay. Yeah. Oh yeah, and it you know I always say it was it really was boy heaven. Um, you know, I had two older brothers that were four and five years older, and I mean, you know, hunting and fishing. Well, I said hunting actually is hunting, hunting and fishing. <laughs> There's no G on those, right? Um, and you know, horses and cows and tractors and dogs and, um, man, where else would a boy want to grow up? And, um, it was a great place to, uh, for all that. And then tragedy entered, uh, my parents divorced when I was eight years old. And, um, I, uh, uh, so I was eight. My brothers at that point were like, you know, 12 and, um, uh, 13 years old. And then, my mother and her new uh, husband, we, my brothers and I came up with an affectionate name for him later in life um, when a certain movie came out because we never really could call him Stepfather. We, uh, our affectionate name became Stepfocker, <laughs> if you remember yeah, that movie, right? And so yeah. that was our affectionate name. Yeah. He, he didn't beat us or anything, but you knew he was capable. And so the goal was just to stay away. Yeah. Um, except when we were working and, you know, kind of had to be around him on the farm, but that was about it. And so we figured out how to stay away. And, um, and so my little sister uh, in their marriage was born and I was 10 years old and that became my mother's new little nuclear family. And I became where's Waldo at that point, And I was turned over to the wolf pack. Uh, my okay. 14 and 15 year old brothers how and their buddies at that point. Yeah, I was 10. ten. Okay. Yeah, they divorced when I was eight, and um, and my mother remarried very quickly. Um, and then they had my little sister. Uh, she's my half sister, but I love her dearly. And um, yeah, but but I became you know kind of uh, certainly the lost child. And the, my brothers mm-hmm. were already running the roads, and so I just you know joined the wolf pack. My two older brothers and their fourteen and fifteen year older buddies and so i always say i was just you know raised by wolves we were free-range children way ahead of our you know time okay now pause i am not from mississippi what in the hell does it mean to be raised by wolves and they're running the roads 
I don't know what that means. What are you saying right now? <laughs> that that just means, Aaron, that there was just very little adult supervision, and you just kind of figure stuff out on your own. And mm-hmm. we figured a lot of stuff out. And um, yeah, and I mean, it really uh, it was kind of like the wild, wild west. And what um, what year was this? Like around. So this now. would have been in um, in you know I was eight, uh, so. Uh, I, this was 69 and then, you know, early seventies, uh, yeah. is when, when, yeah, I was running with the wolf pack and we just, we figured a lot of stuff out and uh, part did, of it. What did you know, the wolf pack, not you necessarily, but what, what does the wolf pack do? I'm picturing stand yeah. by me. I'm picturing Stephen King's stand by me book right now. If, if only it was that innocent. Oh um, my gosh. Um, okay. Yes. Did, oh yeah. Talk about other people, not you. I don't want to put this on you, but what does a wolf pack in Mississippi do at that time? Well, at that time, you know, the county I grew up in, uh, it was still a dry county. And so in order to get beer and liquor, you had to go across the county line. And across the county line were, you know, beer joints. And you wind up spending a lot of time in these wonderful places, learning a lot about life uh, <laughs> at like, you know, 10, 11, 12 wow. years old, right? Wow. And wow. so, yeah. And so we're just, you know, we're basically, you know, doing what uh, we saw the, all the adults in our lives do. And uh, no, no adult supervision. And you just kind of, you know, you go, you work hard and, then you go, you know, drink beer and um, shoot stuff, and then you discover girls. Um, and I had actually, you know, thank goodness we did not have high-speed internet yeah. back then um, because I discovered porn magazines when I was about eight years old, mm-hmm. and my, you know, mother's attitude was boys will be boys, and we had porn magazines on bedside table. And so that just became a steady diet, um, and it was just there, and it was not a big deal. I grew up in the Easter Christian denomination, which I think <laughs> is probably the largest one in the world. Um, we went to church at it. It was actually the Easter maybe uh, Christian denomination. Oh, okay, yeah. We might go to church at Easter, which was kind of weird because in Mississippi, you know, everybody goes to church, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it may not, may not mean a whole lot, but at least you go to church, but we did not. And, um, you know, as I look back and just my chaotic journey of growing up, God was present in the chaos. There's mm-hmm. just, you know, there's pivotal moments in my life and people that God put in my life along the way. And, um, like my wife, Eve and I started dating when we were 15. Um, we, we are, we're, we're not, we we're not cousins, even though you know, 15, yeah, yeah, yeah. In Mississippi, you know, you, you go to a family reunion and you find you find your bride. But, yeah, but we didn't do that, um, and so we started dating at fifteen, and of course, you know, sex uh, entered that part of that it entered our relationship very quickly, and. Um, you know, Eva thought it was cool because she could come to my house and, you know, she could get a beer out of the refrigerator. Mm-hmm. Uh, she grew up um, in in a home. They were they were very Baptist and there were a lot of rules and mm-hmm. um, you made up rules about some more rules. And and very there wasn't a whole lot of relationship. Uh, her dad was an alcoholic and 
a deacon in the little Baptist church and, you know, mother worried about daddy's drinking all the time. And so, you know, Eva grew up in that environment. She meets me where there's no rules and she thought that was pretty cool. I think that was the attraction. (laughs) And so, so we started dating and of course I've got the porn thing already going on and uh, sex enters. And so now you know, um, we get into our high school sweetheart relationship and, you know, typical, we break up and get back together and, uh, we rocked along and, um, and then, um, we wound up going to college, um, in the, in between our, uh, well, it was the freshman year that summer before we went to college, she got pregnant. And in my mind, I just thought we would, you know, I, We'd get married, and I would farm and build a house on the place, and because I'd already had several buddies that had already done that, that's just kind of what you do. And well, I talk, I called my mother and talked to her, and she said, "Well, you, you don't need to get married. She just needs to get an abortion." I had an abortion when I was in college, and so y'all do not need to get married. So I was seventeen. Uh, that was in June. I turned eighteen in August, and so it was like like not much support uh, for my plan. And so I told Eva about that. And then we made the decision and uh, she had an abortion um, really that, that day. Wow. Um, One, a whole lot of thought. And so, you know, second great tragedy or in psychobabble, we would call it trauma. Um, That was, that was a big one uh, for sure. Mm -hmm. Parents divorcing and then the abortion and how that affected uh, certainly um, me, but but Eva suffered when, from post traumatic stress disorder. When did uh, you which, When did you first yeah. feel that? Well, I think you know just the impact of it. You know, it's just kind of one of those things when you're you know 17, 18 years old, you don't realize the effect that it has, um, and just you know over time. Uh, certainly, after I came to Jesus, I was twenty years old. Uh, in college, uh, when that happened, and and that's when it really began to you know have a deeper effect on me. Uh, certainly, there were moments, but I just didn't have the kind of understanding that I did as I you know got a little bit older. Can I, can but Eva Eva was suffering from full blown PTSD, which we know now. You know, nobody talks about this in the abortion debate, but somewhere in the neighborhood of it's in the 80 percentile of women that have abortions suffer from full-blown PTSD. And she did. Yeah. We didn't know what it was. I just thought she's gone crazy. Um, and so our relationship intensified and lots of fighting and, uh, you know, like she couldn't talk to anybody about the abortion. And so the way we would talk about it is just, she would, get angry and rage and, you know, be mad at me. And I'm like a deer in the headlights going, what's going on here? And so we decided that uh, the way to fix that would be to get married, right? Because that fixes (laughs) everything. And um, we got married going into our senior year in college. Um, Just, yeah, amazing. Um, And I had, I did, I came to Christ when I was 20 years old. Uh, I always say it's a big deal um, when you're a 20 year old frat boy and you give up drinking, cussing and smoking, that's a big deal. Yeah. I was, I was all in and all we needed knew to do at that point was to go to church. And, you know, uh, Eva 
um, this was before we were married, 20, we're dating and in college. And um, my good little Baptist wife um, led me through the sinner's prayer. Uh, and kind of the reason I got into that place of just knowing I needed something different, uh, I got in a DUI um, mm-hmm. and I spent the night in the Starkville City Jail. Uh, me and Johnny Cash. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you know that story, but that's a that's a great yeah. story in Johnny Cash history. And so, and for some reason, it just did a number on me because it was not like I tarnished the family name. My middle brother, by that point, I don't know, he probably had four or five DUIs. It, but for some reason, man, it just did a number on me. And and um, even this was a couple of weeks after that happened. Uh, she's like you know, you, you need Jesus. And I said, I do. And she led me through the sinner's prayer. And like I say, it became very real because, yeah, um, to give up drinking, cussing and smoking because I wanted to be a good Baptist Mm because that's what it takes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was all in and we started going to church, um, and been involved in church, um, just about ever since in some way, shape or form. And, most of it now, I, I I throw rocks from the inside of church uh, <laughs> through the stained glass windows, not from the outside. I'm very mm-hmm. involved, but I believe that church needs to change because mm-hmm. uh, look around at culture. Something's not working. Okay, yeah. pause and, um, on that. I'm not yeah. letting you skate over that. And, all right, and, all right. And we've got vocabulary that goes into that. Vocabulary is super <laughs> important. So, Mr. Inside Rock Thrower. What is it that you've come here? Here you came from a pornography on the bedside stands. Mom says boys will be boys. I want to talk about your mom a lot, but we're not going to do that right now. But oh my gosh, I have so many questions about oh, yeah. these things. But then you came to Christ and you have come to throw rocks from the inside. What does that mean? No more little fancy <laughs> phrases. What does it mean? <laughs> what does it mean? Well, that's been a journey uh, because uh, even I get married and um, and then we moved uh, away. Um, just, uh, you know, I started my career in corporate sales and uh, we lived in the Mobile, Alabama, Fairhope area for about five years. And then I got transferred to Nashville we were there for a year and then uh, wound up in Atlanta. I always say I was held hostage there for 22 years. Um, mm. And um, it was in Atlanta when I admitted to Eva one day that I had a problem with pornography. Now, she did not know anything because we were Sunday school class presidents in one of the biggest Baptist churches in Atlanta, very involved and we look good on the outside, you know, mm-hmm. the white picket fence, uh, two babies and, and a dog and a house and perfect, right? But, boy, on the inside, uh, we were – it was not good. And, you know, my pornography addiction um, grew into a full-blown sexual addiction. Um, and, you know, I was going to strip joints and massage parlors and ultimately prostitutes. And, again, all hidden and all secret – and I was in church sincerely wanting mm-hmm. to not do those things. And I would hear the sermons or because nobody ever said they struggled with lust. Nobody ever even said they used to struggle with lust back then. Cause remember this was <laughs> now we're in the nineties, right? Yeah, well, yeah. 
Actually, this was in the 80s because um, I admitted to her on February the 11th, 1990, that I had a problem with pornography. Just that. And um, and so I would hear all the things that like to deal with sin, right? You know, mm-hmm. uh, read your Bible more, pray harder, which I always ask, does that mean grunt? <laughs> I haven't ever figured out exactly what that means. So, but I tried grunting when I prayed, and that didn't work either. And, <laughs> man, I I would try everything that I would hear, and I'm also a reader. Um, I, even with the, you know, the porn magazines, I didn't just look at the pictures. You know, I'm a reader. Yeah, I read it. everything in there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so, man, I would read and try to figure out and. Again, in 1990, there was very little out there as far as how to deal with any of this. And and so, Eva, um, just we're having a discussion, and she asked me, you know, why are you so down? And uh, I, I looked at her, and the words came out of my mouth, I have a problem with pornography. And I know that that was God, because if it had been me, I would have said, geography? Yeah. You know, honey, I'm just so upset. I can't read a map. Yeah. It's so depressing. I just don't know how to read a map. Damn it, where is Peru? I can't find it. <laughs> Stupid Yeah, Peru. exactly. But boy, when those words came out of my mouth, I, I literally remember kind of turning around going, who said that? Because there yeah. was no way in hell I was ever going to admit it. I wasn't going to tell her. I was going to deal with this problem, but mm-hmm. God knew what it was going to take. And that's what got all of it out into the light. And just based on me telling her pornography, she loads up our two little baby boys who were like two and almost four at the time. She puts them in the car and she comes back home to Mississippi. And there was a whole lot more there than just pornography. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting there just going, what in the world just happened? And so that began the journey of just, you know, for me, getting into um, recovery. I got engaged with a Christian counselor in Atlanta. Um, and again, 1990, as you know, Nate, there, yeah. there was very little out there. Right. Um, and uh, But I, I did get connected to uh, Dr. Doug Rosenau, who just passed away about a month ago, actually. Um, but Doug uh, was, you know, one of the pioneers in Christian sex therapy. And as far as, you know, at that time, probably one of the best people you could, you know, find. And so I got connected with Doug and, you know, I began my recovery journey and I was all in. And, um, you know, I got involved in, uh, you know, there was a one of the first Christ-centered recovery and support group ministries that started in Atlanta uh, by a guy named Bill Morris, who was a LPC counselor. And they started it at uh, Mount Perrin Church of God and mm-hmm. the church supported it. And um, that thing grew and it was, it would have been celebrate recovery if we had just had a little more sense, but we, we didn't, we, we weren't that organized. <laughs> you didn't know how to market that stuff? Oh, uh, well, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, John Baker was a better organizer. Uh, but but that's what, you know, that's that's where I really began, you know, my recovery journey and beginning to do my work. And then Eva was not really on board with all that because, like, we would go to counseling and, um, you know, Doug would be talking to me and then – course we knew i was the problem that that was easy and Mm -hmm. then he'd kind of shine the light over on her and he'd like you know what about your dad being an alcoholic and 
her standard answer was, I'm fine. He's the problem. That's why we're here. Fix him. And then, okay, we go back and, you know, work was, on was me. Was that a quote? <laughs> direct quote. Oh, yeah. And, and then, you know, Doug would, you know, wanted to talk about the abortion. And her answer was like, I'm over that. Um, it doesn't affect me. And, you know, he's the problem. That's why we're here. Fix him. And so that's that was our counseling for about two years. And Eva just didn't really um, want any part of it. What we know now, and, you know, she was dealing with severe betrayal trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, and, again, that term didn't even come about until the yeah, 2000s, early 2000s, yeah. I think, uh, if then. And so we were just really, um, I mean, Doug was as good as they come, but there just wasn't a whole lot, uh, even dealing with sexual addiction, and certainly betrayal trauma was not even touched. You know, back then the the wife was the she was the co-addict, right. uh, she was the codependent, um, and now you know they're we call them partners. But but yeah, she was she was not she was not up for um, counseling, and really it was just uh, you know she was dealing with complex betray or complex trauma at that point because of just alcoholic father. Uh, the abortion, and now this betrayal. And so we kind of rocked along for two years, and it was uh, just hell on earth. Um, I did not want to be divorced. I loved her uh, very much. And I was beginning to figure out in my counseling work how my parents' divorce had affected me. And the last thing I wanted was that for my two sons. But somehow or another, um, God decided that, uh, I mean, obviously, you know, I wouldn't have drawn it up this way, Mm -hmm. but uh, we got divorced after two years. And, um, but it was during the divorce is where Eva had her grace awakening. And uh, she went to an adult children of alcoholics meeting and they gave her what's called the laundry list of an adult child of an alcoholic. And Mm -hmm. for some reason, boy, the light bulb came on and she began to realize that she had her own work to do. And then we started talking, um, and and then uh, we reconciled after being separated and divorced for a little over a year. And wow. we remarried and both committed to doing our own work and doing recovery. And um, we that's ultimately why we are doing what we do today. Okay, mm-hmm. off, um, off topic. Yes, uh, sir. Possibly off topic. There are a lot of listeners going through divorces, and yeah. many of them want to make it work and try to make it work, and it's not working. Yeah. Now, without like the story you just gave is a pretty fairy tale story for them. Oh yeah. However, it would not have happened until you surrendered the control of okay, we're totally we're done we're getting divorced now that doesn't necessarily represent your heart uh, Mm -hmm. of being done so what do you say to those people that are still fighting quote fighting for their marriage but it it still creates this constriction from what their spouse might need to actually Mm -hmm. become and that might lead back to the marriage it might not what do you say to them? 
Yeah, I think, Aaron, it's like, you know, getting to that place of acceptance um, and giving up control because, you know, control is part of addiction um, and um, it, it, it is that place of surrender and really mm-hmm. trusting God because I was trying to fight for my marriage and I was in a, um, it was the old Christian Businessmen's Committee, CBMC. I don't know if y'all remember mm-hmm. that, uh, Ministry of the Navigators. And, you know, I was always involved in some kind of men's Bible study or men's group or something, even before recovery. Mm-hmm. Um, and and these guys, uh, I was part of the, I guess, the leadership team for, and we would meet. And, of course, I became the project, you know. Have you ever been a project in a men's group? I have. Uh, that's that's not any fun. We're, yeah. we're going to pray for you, right? Nobody's yeah. revealing nothing about themselves. <laughs> yeah, you don't ever want to be a project in a men's group. But these guys were sincere, and, um, man, they, they would. They would pray for me, and, and they would encourage me to, like, fight for your marriage. You know, stand in there, don't, don't sign the papers and all that. And I did come into that group one week, and I said, look, how about you go home and you live with her for a week and then you get back to me and you let me know because my wife, she's, she's a strong woman and a little five foot, six inch, 125 pound woman can knock the fire out of you. And she would rage, but that was part of the PTSD and the, and the betrayal trauma. And I was like, okay, I'll go in for another round. And finally, I mean, it just, there was no way that it was going to work. And, and so when I just, whew, it was the last thing I wanted, but when I just surrendered and accepted that it had to happen, there was just no way that it could keep going. It was not sustainable. And do you, and, do you remember what made you come to that place where you surrendered? Because after the surrender, she had the space to work. Yeah. What oh was yeah, it? and if Eva was on here, she would she would affirm that there was just one of those things to where she was so, you know, just locked down because of the betrayal trauma and what she was dealing with. Um, just there was there was no way she was going to come out of that um, until there was some space for her to breathe um, and even realize that you know she could she had a choice mm-hmm. right. In, in in that space is where she was able to kind of come to her own uh, self and realize she needed to do her own work regardless of me. And then that gave her the, you know, kind of the liminal space to be able to kind of open up to the possibility that, you know, we could, you know, pull this thing back together. And, you know, one of the things that she saw um we always talk about this. One of the things that you have to demonstrate in order to regain, rebuild trust is consistent action over time. Yeah. Like when we got divorced, I, I did not stop going to counseling. I did not stop going to my men's groups. I did not stop going to my recovery groups. I did not stop going to my therapy group. I was all in. I wanted recovery. And she saw that even in the divorce. And that spoke volumes to her because at that point it would have been real easy just to say, peace out. Mm-hmm. Right. This is, but I was, I was doing it for me because I knew I needed it uh, yeah. regardless of our marriage. I certainly wanted our marriage, but I knew I needed to be a better man and I needed to 
yeah, I figure a whole lot out about myself. And so I stayed engaged in my process. So let's get you to this point where you become a counselor. You got other family <laughs> members counseling. Give us that story. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, as I say, that began the journey. And, you know, I am I guess I'm a slow learner because it only took me about, let's see, um, that was in 1990. And I started, we started our counseling practice um, in 2012. Wow. So you'll have to help me with the math. Yeah. Um, yeah it took three me. years. Okay. <laughs> there you go. I'm, not, I'm yes. not very good at math myself. That's Mississippi math. I like it. Uh, but yeah, it took me about 25 years of training uh, in order to become a counselor uh, yeah. because that training was just my own work and my own recovery and Eva's work and her recovery. Our work is uh, in our recovery as a couple and, you know, rebuilding and restoring the marriage and, um, and, you know, all the while, you know, engaged in a highly stressful corporate sales environment. Um, yeah. Raising two sons. Mm. Uh, and we were always involved in, in our churches in some form of lay ministry counseling. And I was already, you know, I was meeting with guys individually, just, you know, yeah. The pastors would be like, hey, you need to go talk to Roan Hunter when yeah. they would get the guy dealing with porn or whatever. And so, you know, I started I started counseling way back, and now I, just, uh, I'm, I get paid to do it, but we've been doing it for a while. <laughs> but I always, I always tell people, man, don't, don't ever trust a counselor that hasn't done their own work. Yeah. And so when we started our practice, and that was in 2012, um, I'd always said I wanted to be out of the can corporate I, world. I, I gotta, I gotta pause again. <laughs> I love it. Don't ever trust a counselor that hasn't done their own work. How do you know? Because I agree with you, but here are people yeah. looking for counselors, and there are a lot of shitty counselors in the world. Dude, and I you agree. are preaching the gospel. I, Amen. How do I? What a high five? What do I do? That's, I I don't know. That's so but, true. <laughs> how do people? Like, I want the rest of your story, but you said that, and there are yeah. so many people that need to say, yeah, I agree, and what do I do with what you just said? How do I ever know oh, yeah. if a counselor's done their own work? Well, you, you, there's there's lots of questions that you can ask, and, you know, you're engaging with somebody. It, it's different than going to a doctor, right? I want to see his degrees on the wall, right? I want to... I want to know that he's gone to the best schools and universities out there um, because that's what he needs. But counselors need life experience and they need to understand themselves. And you, you need to ask questions about direct questions. You know, tell me about the work that you've done. Yeah. How much counseling have you, how much time have you spent sitting on this stupid couch? Yeah. Um, tell me about the groups you've been a part of. Uh -huh. um, tell me about the work you did in your counseling. You know, tell me about your trauma, all, all that stuff. Now, you know, some of them probably aren't going to want to tell you anything because, you know, in counseling world, we get trained not to do personal disclosure, yeah. which is just a whole crock of crap. Oh, um, amen. <laughs> come on. I'm, I'm loving this. This is fun. They, they beat that stuff into you, right? Yeah. Okay. okay. And, you know, so, thank God. so you're saying yeah. do ask those questions you just said. It's okay yeah. to ask yeah. that. A hundred percent. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because, 
I mean, you know, counseling is different because really we're working at a soul level. You know, yeah. I'm not replacing your kidneys or something. Um, we're 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 really getting into you know belief system. We're getting into fundamental, you know, uh, foundational spiritual formation. Your belief about God. Um, we're, we're getting into your family history and how those things affected you. And I mean, you're you're going into a. I mean, you know, psychology used to be. It was you know the Greek. It's the study of the soul. I'm not sure what it is today, but mostly a lot of craziness. Mm-hmm. Um, but <laughs> but there is this idea of soul care, and if you're going to be you know, going to that level with somebody, you might want to know that they are number one, a safe person, um, and that they aren't going to just try to clinically diagnose you and, yeah. um, you know, give you some, you know, personality disorder, um, which, okay. yeah, you know, that's the part of my so, job that I just despise. So, mm. so it's okay to ask those questions. Go ahead with yeah. your other, uh, you were you're going with the story, but I had to pause you on that. It's okay to ask those questions to find out if your counselor. Oh man, my son has come in. I'm I'm lit like a glorious being right now. You you really you look like an angel. Uh, well, yeah, you know you, you really brought did. that up, and I was just like, oh, it's wonderful. Yeah, uh, it's, so it's, on, at this point, it's a shame it's not a video podcast. <laughs> I'm seeing it in the corner of my screen. I'm embarrassed. Okay. So it's okay to ask those questions. Please do go on with your story, Ron. So you guys, now you did get, you, you did do formal training as well. It wasn't Mm -hmm. just, you're not just street smarts, right? No, no. We, um, yeah, we, I started in Atlanta, uh, somewhere. I think I was around, yeah, probably my mid thirties, uh, -hmm. late thirties. When um, I'd had you know several people mentors along the way that like that were encouraging me to do that, I had an inkling of you know moving into well. When I first got into recovery, um, you, you know I I told Eva I was I was called to be a pastor, mm. you know because that's I mean what else do you do right? That, that's <laughs> yeah. all you know. Oh, God's done right. this great thing, and yeah. so I'm gonna I got to go be a pastor or. Even better, the Holy Grail of Christendom become a missionary, right? Mm-hmm. Go Wait, save the that's the that's your order of operation that you grew up with. Okay, fine, yeah. that's cool. I mean, yeah, that that's those people are high and lifted up, man. Mm-hmm. And so, I guess that's what I'm supposed to be. And but then, of course, you know, thank goodness I had a wife that said she would never be a pastor's wife, and yeah, that that didn't happen. <laughs> I would have been the worst pastor ever. Uh-huh. Although I do know how to shame people really well, so I might have been good. <laughs> oh, um, snap. I just said it. Yeah. And so, yeah, I began uh, my uh, counseling graduate work at uh, Richmond uh, Graduate School in Atlanta, which is really just one of the best Christian counseling programs in the country, I think, because it's not only is it integrated, uh, but the focus of Richmond uh, was on the spiritual life of the counselor. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and um, man, I was fortunate. I had uh, my advisor, mentor was Dr. Gary Moon. Oh wow! Uh, Gary now runs the yeah the I, Dallas Willard Center yeah. at Westmont, and um, but yeah, Gary was the guy that introduced me to Richard Foster and Dallas Willard, and just a you know a yeah. plethora of of people that come from a different vein. And so 
um, you know, that's where Eva and I both started. And then um, we wound up moving back to Mississippi in 2008, and we finished our our graduate work here at Mississippi College. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, Eva's idea that we were going to do this counseling thing uh, when we retired. And, and I had a different idea because I'd always said I wanted to be out of corporate world by the time I was 50 because I know what they do with 50-year-olds in, in corporate America. Uh-huh. Yeah, they they put you out, to, they fire you, or uh, and then they hire the 25-year-old about half of what you're making. Mm-hmm. And so we started our private practice in, uh, in October of 2012, and I was 49. So I made it. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Yeah, is, it was it was Eva, somewhat of a surprise. Round one. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, I tricked her. I told her, "Yeah, we're going to do that when when we retire." But yeah, and then it's just been amazing. You know, we, we, we our practice has grown. We've got uh, 15, 16 therapists and three offices, and um, you know what God's done and the doors that have been open. Um, it's just I one of the things that when we lived in Atlanta, we kicked around moving back because our sons were in college and we were like, okay, maybe we do want to just get out of Atlanta and stress levels. That's an automatic. Yeah. Yeah. About a yeah five notch stress level reduction. And so we, um, we made the decision to move back. But one of the things that always kept us from moving back was like, and it was more me certainly than her, but I was like, I'm going to have to go to some God awful Baptist church and I'm, <laughs> I, if I had to choose between heaven or the little Baptist church or something, I'd had, I'm not saying I would choose hell, but I would have to think about it for a minute. Listeners, <laughs> listeners who go to Baptist churches, Sorry. he's not talking about yours. Yours no, is no, freaking awesome. Other one. It's the other ones that suck. <laughs> and so, but you know, God has this twisted sense of humor. And we moved back here, and um, the the first church we went to, if you'd closed your eyes, you would think you were at the church, at our church in Atlanta. It, I mean, it, you know, it, yeah. it, it, it's just, it was like, okay, well, this is this is great. And, and then, um, you know, just with the counseling practice, and I got connected with a guy uh, here uh, who's a therapist and had been doing these men's coaching weekends for at that point, uh, maybe eight or nine years. And um, he and I met randomly because that's how meetings happen. Mm-hmm. God didn't have anything to do with it. And it was like <laughs> spirit met spirit. And um, he was, these weekends are kind of patterned after, you know, John Eldridge and Wild at Heart and, and a little different than that, but certainly along that, along those lines. And that was like, for me, that was like duck water. Um, and so, mm-hmm. He and I connected, and I started doing these men's coaching weekends with him, and and then we finished our training. And um, these weekends, uh, we've had literally in just in I I hooked up with him in two thousand eight, and I just in that time we do six a year, and we've probably had over a thousand guys that have come through those weekends, and out of that has formed this men's community here in the buckle of the Bible Belt, which yeah. is, again, God's great sense of humor. Mm-hmm. And there's so many guys that are just, you know, they're doing their work, they're engaged in this process, and 
And, you know, just like, because we always say, man, the cure for what else every one of us, the cure is connection. Yeah. Um, and I tell guys, you know, we can't go be connecting with other women. That's not going to end well. Um, and what we've got to begin to do is form uh, intimate, deep relationships with other men uh, on a spiritual level. And um, that I always say, if I figure out something better than that, I'll be doing infomercials and flying around in a jet or something. <laughs> Um, because I'm for it, but yeah. I just haven't found it. And yeah. the guys that I've seen grow and change are the guys that get connected, stay connected, begin to do the deeper work and figuring this stuff out. And um, we really begin to do life together in a real way. Yeah. So before we end this, because we're getting close to the end. Yeah. You've been involved with recovery work for a long time the transitions of how the church sees this over the last 20 years, hugely crazy different, both with yeah. ideas and vocabulary, what's acceptable, but how you still have to put it in boxes. So what is it that you most want people going through recovery to understand that maybe is missed by all of these iterations and progressions of the church? Man, that's a great question, Aaron. And I think it 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 really, you know, when we talk about recovery, I and like recovery is just simply recovering the life that God intended us to live, right? Mm -hmm. And and what's happened, you know, in just psychobabble world and all the like, well, the recovery people, you know, twelve steps and recovery and all that, that's for those people. And the thing of it is, you know, the 12 steps, uh, as Dallas Willard says, are the greatest model of spiritual transformation available to the church in the, you know, in, in our century. Yeah. Um, and he wasn't a counselor guy. He's a spiritual formation guy. And the thing that um, when I say throwing rocks from the inside is just how frustrating it is that so many churches just do not get the idea of recovery and understanding how these things that we've all experienced, you know, the the the, the trauma, to use the psychobabble term, the tragedies in our life, uh, the things that we grew up in, and, you know, our spirits were formed in those circumstances, and there were shame messages that formed out of that. And then we begin to believe it and we begin to live it out because we're going to live out what we believe. And I can sing the song in my head all day long. You know, Jesus loves me. This I know because the Bible tells me so. But man, if I don't believe that in my gut, that, that I am loved and accepted fully by God, well, I'm going to live out what I believe. And if I believe that I am unworthy of love, that I am inadequate, that I am insignificant, that I am incompetent, all of those toxic shame messages that rumble around in our heads and our hearts until we begin to identify those. And, 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 you know, that is the father of lies. He plants that stuff in us and he goes back home to Las Vegas because that's where he lives um, <laughs> and he doesn't have to do a whole lot. Yeah. And then the shame is just working in our lives. But if I can get in an environment where I'm exposed, we always say the antidote for shame is chronic exposure to love and acceptance. Mm -hmm. um, you know, my shame will heal in that environment. And we become shame resilience because there's two things that drive addiction. It's anger and shame. Mm. 
And, you know, you've got to deal with those two things. And, you know, that anger so often is driven by the injustices, the the things that happen in all of our lives because mom and dad were imperfect just like we are. And there were things that happened, uh, sometimes certainly unintentional. Uh, sometimes it is more intentional or explicit than implicit. But we've got to begin to do that work to figure out where that anger um, is coming from it, and the anger and contempt that drive us to want to go seek comfort. Mm. And we figured out the way of comfort, you know, early on in some way, shape, or form, whatever that form is. And um, I like the term distress reduction behavior mm-hmm. because I believe that these traditionally we've called them process addictions. Um, I, Nate, I think I told you this. I've got two certifications in sex addiction work in addition to my graduate counseling degree. And um, and I do not like the term sexual addiction Yeah, because it just does not fit in what we would think of in a tradition. Like, I mean, when you think about a crackhead, that guy wakes up in the morning and he's not thinking about anything uh, but where he's going to go get his drug, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And he'll lie, rob, cheat, steal. He doesn't care. This thing is different than that. Um, and there's, when we put it in the addiction category, it's, I think it's, it's doing a disservice because it really is a distress reduction behavior. I get under emotional distress and I want to go back to the maladaptive coping behavior that I learned early on that works for me. Yes. And it's the emotional distress and the emotional dysregulation that we've got to begin to work with, um, and, you know, that's yeah. that's what came out of all our lived experiences in some way. Wow. And, and so the church thing drives me crazy because it's like this separateness in, you know, in, in our worlds of like, okay, over here is addiction and recovery. And over here is, I don't know, good church folks, I guess. Um, they, they Evidently, they're all good. Um, and then, but how do you deal with, you know, the, the, just look around and what's going on. Um, I always tell people we're Christian counselors and I'm not driving up, driving out to the local hookup joint and loading my bus. You know, the people that, that we work with are, you know, they're sitting in the pews next to us, just like us. Yeah. I mean, we're all in the same boat. Yeah. Well, man, I wish we could talk more about this, Nate. How in the hell can we talk more about this with Roan and, (laughs) Well, here's an idea. People. Here's an idea. Here's an idea. Uh, so, Roan, Roan, you do uh, 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 you do these intensive weekends now, and I'm a I'm a huge advocate of uh, of intensives from a therapy. As somebody oh, yeah. who spent a lot of time in therapy, I would say the most profitable work I've done, most life changing work I've done, has been in four concentrated four and five day. Uh, experiences. Totally agree. Where it's yep. experiential, it's not didactic, uh, there's continuity, it's not like, I, it, because I found wisdom for me has a very high evaporation rate. And Nate, so, you're going to uh, have to define not didactic to me because I'm focused on the leg lamp behind you. I just, you know, I need some definitions to terms. <laughs> so it's, a, it's not a lecture, all right? He'll set up a framework, uh, mm. uh, but then it's experiential, right? So, uh, yeah. and you do those with your son, Ro, who is mm-hmm. also a CSAT? 
He is. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And yep. and then there are times also when uh, uh, your wife Eva now she your Eva works with partners a lot. I understand. Oh yeah, she does. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And she's 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 a CSAT as well. We're yeah. both CSAT supervisors. I'm CSAT and, is a uh, yes. certified, certified sex addiction. addiction therapist. Okay, just making sure <laughs> I'm defined. Bona fides. Come on, yeah. you guys. Bona fides. Throw a yeah, bone bona here. <laughs> uh, so oh, yeah. between the three of you, you have seen this behavior, whatever we want to call it, sex addiction. I really like, I mean, I have just taken to talking about ever since our conversation, Ron, talking yeah. about distress reduction behavior. Because uh, I really do think that's the apt description of what's going on. Uh, you all have seen it from all angles. You've seen it uh, as uh, a head of household, husband, father. Roe has seen it growing up with a, a dad, perhaps his early earliest memories of a dad who's in addiction and then a dad who's in recovery. He's got trauma. Eva has the perspective of the wife. Yeah. So here's the idea. All three of them are going to come to the fall retreat in Eva, Tennessee, and they're going to be our presenters this year. How is that? Awesome. Ah. Huh? <laughs> oh, oh. We, we're, we're in. We're excited. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, absolutely thrilled about that. And uh, I just look look forward to working more and more with you, Roan, as time goes on. Well, uh, we've come to the end of our time. Roan, thank you so much for, for joining oh, us. Uh, absolutely. And we, we need to. Yep. Yeah. And you and we I have some do. other stuff to follow up on. We're not going to talk about yes. it on the podcast, but yeah. Oh, yeah. All right. Absolutely. All right. Well, listeners, stay with us. We'll be right back on the Pirate Monk Podcast. And we are back on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Well, Roan, what a sweet boy. I like him. <laughs> I like him a lot. Uh, and, and not just because he's, you know, of my generation, but uh, <laughs> I like that he's, he's, uh, he's just calling it like he sees it. Yeah. Okay. He, you know, uh, okay, go ahead. He, he said, he said, if it, <laughs> he, I, he told me that he would like to, he would love to be able to put a billboard up, you know, advertising his practice. It would just say, give the name of the practice and just say, we're not crazy. <laughs> uh, uh Okay, yeah. here's here's something that is so important to me, and I got I got cut off at the end of the the podcast. He cares about vocabulary, mm-hmm. and I care so much about the words people use and hear and apply to themselves. Mm-hmm. Right. So if someone says I'm an addict, great. I don't care. Yeah. Great. But what does that mean to you? It might mean yeah. something appropriate. It might mean something inappropriate. Right. Yeah. And he cares about vocabulary because what we speak creates the world we live in. This is what I believe mm-hmm. about myself because I say it over and over and over. And, yeah. and, and I'm not even saying what vocabulary is right or wrong. I'm just saying it might be 
not helpful. And I so appreciate that he thinks about that and says, yeah, I don't use those words. I use these words. And there's a reason and words matter. What, what do you think about that? Oh, and you know, I mean, I couldn't agree more. It, it, and especially words, it, not just words, but the words, the way we describe ourselves to ourselves. Yeah. That's really uh, what's crucial. And usually those, we've picked up those cues, we've inferred from life experience, from either the abuse or the uh, uh, neglect of others or the care and nurture of others either affirmation or defamation, um, we have inferred who we are. We've now formed this idea of who we are. And and we operate. An identity. Yeah. And we operate out of that identity. And, uh, you know, one of the things we have in common with Roan is that we believe that there is a nefarious uh, force at work in the universe. There is actually an ancient evil enemy who hates us. Well, who and whispers. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, yeah. but beyond that is that we can't do a, I'm a Fox news person or a CNN news person version of this shit. Right. Because for some people, it's the most important thing in the world to admit I'm an addict. For mm-hmm. other people to identify as an addict becomes confusing and they don't know how to get out of that loop that yeah. there are certain words that are important to one person that can be detrimental to another. That doesn't make those no, words bad. It means mm-hmm. you have to process what does this mean? And that's yeah, hard right. to do. And that's where yeah, we don't yeah. have to like say, screw that group. And yes to that yeah. group. I'm not willing to say screw any group. I'm just saying, hey, be careful. Be careful what you identify with because it becomes your identity. Right. There you go. Well, it has been uh, quite a profitable conversation this week, Aaron. Well, profitable's our goal, Nate. <laughs> <laughs> And we've got we we've got more uh, interesting conversations uh, coming up. But that's it for this week. I think we've run out of time. We do love to hear from you. Yeah, uh, hey, you reach us at, we want what? your questions, your thoughts. We want to read them here. We want to talk about them here. For Pete's sake, send in a question or a comment that we can discuss here. At you can send it to Pirate Monk Podcast at gmail.com. And also, hey, do us a favor, wherever you listen to us, wherever you find your podcast, go ahead and give us a rating. That bumps us up visibility and uh, makes it possible for more people to find us. I'm so embarrassed that you're saying that these days, but it's a true statement. Fucking hell. Uh, uh, (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, until next week, then. I'm Nate. And I'm the the potty mouth. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, we are your pals on the Pirate Monk Podcast. The Pirate Monk Podcast is produced by members of the Samson Society. Send your feedback or questions to piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. 
please give us a five-star review on iTunes and share the podcast with a friend. For more information, please visit samsonsociety.com.